like this is it's like stealthily the most dog positive franchise <laughs> in a world where we have dogs purpose a dog's journey a dog's way home and all these dog movies welcome to the crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yannis jr Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about film that they really connect to or something, it could be something they grew up with or just something that they really, really love and just are very passionate and wanting to talk about. So this episode is a little bit different because while we are focusing on a particular film, we're really also expanding, much like the film itself, into a larger universe and into the franchise that's really come of it. So this episode, I'm joined by John Cohorn. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. Thank you, Rob. I'm happy to be here. So can you tell listeners a little bit about um, who you are, what you have going on, and where they can find you online? Absolutely. Uh, like you said, my name is John Cohorn. I am based out of Austin, Texas, and I am writing for modernhorrors.com. Um, I am a huge and longtime uh, just horror nut. Um, so it's a little bit off, uh, off brand to be talking about action movies like we're going to today, but this is one of the exceptions. One of the first jobs I had when I was a teenager uh, was working in a movie theater, and I, I spent time as a projectionist and spent time managing theaters. Um, and then when I was in college later, I worked in a video store during the heyday of video stores. So movies have always kind of been in my blood. Uh, so it, it's a joy to to be able to to write for Modern Horrors and to uh, to join people like you doing movie podcasting and talk about uh, this this thing that's in my blood. That's funny, too, because my first job was actually working at an AMC, uh, actually the same one I go to frequently still down this like 10 minutes from my house here in, uh, oh, wow. in Tampa, Florida. So I go there. So I've seen, you know, I, I worked there in the early 2000s, so like 2001 to 2003. Um, so I've seen that theater evolve over the years. And, you know, that's I remember all of that stuff that running into uh, a video store right before, like and just looking at all the the uh, the boxes, and I usually went straight to the horror section, which is funny because uh, while the imagery on those was really usually usually very freaky, especially like a ten year old kid at the time, I, I've I've never really been able to be getting like full bore into horror because I don't know I'm still I think. Um, a little skittish with certain elements. So like things with cannibalism, like for example, I'm like, not so good with what, is there a particular type like subgenre within horror? Because that's such a, a broad uh, term these days. Well, so what got me started down, down the horror path very early, um, I went to a birthday party sleepover when I was in, uh, probably second grade. And my, my parents at the time were, were pretty conservative and, and didn't really let my sister and I watch a whole lot of things unless they had approved it first. Uh, but this particular birthday party, the kid's mom had rented uh, VHS copies of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead and Creep Show and showed them to us back to back. And uh, I couldn't sleep right for weeks afterwards. Uh, but it, it changed my life. Um, and so I've got a soft spot for Romero. Um, you know, some of his movies definitely fall into kind of the B movie category, but when he, when he hits it right, there's just something special about it. I mean, to, to this day, my favorite movie, not just my favorite horror movie is Dawn of the Dead. Um, and so 
Romero is definitely high up on the list. Um, from there, I branched out into Italian horror, so probably a lot of things that that you really wouldn't enjoy: uh, <laughs> zombies and cannibals, and uh, pretty much anything weird. Um, and John Carpenter's a, another one that's that's always high on the list. So, uh, um, I just have a voracious appetite for for cinema. Uh, but when, when family members or friends ask me to, to bring over a movie or something, I start looking at my, at my shelves and probably 90 to 95% of it is, is horror or exploitation. Uh, so I don't really have a whole lot that I can like take over to, to my folks house if we're all hanging out (laughs) over over the holidays or something like that. Right, right. Um, is there just out of curiosity, is there a particular horror movie that you've seen recently, like either something released this year or something that you just recently got a chance to go back and, and check out that, uh, that you would recommend to people listening? Oh man. Well, I, I actually have, have had the opportunity to see some, some really good ones, um, this year and probably there, I would say two of them that that really uh, surprised me um, were a film called I Trap the Devil, um, directed by Josh Lobo. Uh, that was picked up by IFC Midnight. I think now it is on VOD. Um, I don't know if it has uh, if it has been dated for a Blu-ray release, but uh, I loved that film. Uh, it's got AJ Bowen in it, um, and it, it's very much what it sounds. Um, this this guy comes home to visit his brother who has had some mental and emotional issues and comes to find out that he has got someone trapped in his basement who he believes to be the devil and it's this it's this really kind of dark and intimate almost like a character study mixed with a um, an episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, but it it really really hit all the sweet spots for me. And then there was a movie that I reviewed um, out of Tribeca this year um, called Something Else that really blew me away. Uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to nail it down. It, it uh, blends a, a number of, of different genres into it, um, so it is. You know, it, it's got um, drama and romantic comedy and a bit of a character study and creature feature. Um, it stars Jeremy Gardner and uh, Bria Grant and just amazed me. Both of those movies, I think on a on a five star scale, I rated either four or four and a half stars. Um, so those are probably the ones this year that immediately jumped to mind. But I'm sure there are others that that I'm I'm forgetting. <laughs> I, I have gotten pretty religious about keeping a letterboxed account so that I can go back and and check and uh, remember what what I what I viewed and what my initial um, my initial take on it was. It sounds like Tri Trap the Devil has a little bit of like a I'm picking up a little bit of a frailty vibe, sort of from that. You know. Um, it it takes a different approach than frailty, but there are definitely some thematic similarities okay. there. Yeah, I try. I'm not nearly as storied in horror as you. And like I said, there are certain things that I'm like, okay, that sounds a little too far, <laughs> too far down the the rabbit hole or you know the gore hole, I guess, or whatever for me. But but yeah, I do try and seek out. I just actually recently watched. The, the this is kind of random the first the two wolf cop movies because i was like that sounds like something oh, yeah. i have to see <laughs> and then there was uh oh man i can't remember it now there's a new movie coming out is it like i think it's a, a priest who's turning turns into a raptor or something oh 
the Velocipaster. Yes. <laughs> Things like that sometimes are just so bizarre that I'm like, all right, I have to check this out. Or I think yeah, it was an Australian they, movie a few years ago called uh, Housebound that was a lot of fun. Things like that. I like to, every once in a while, I'll be like, yeah, sure, let's, let's check this out. Yes. And, and I actually, so that, that kind of sparked something in my brain. So I did not see it, but they screened the Velocipaster earlier this month at uh, Texas Frightmare Weekend. Um, it was, if I remember correctly, kind of a, a later screening and I had something else going on. Uh, but I would be remiss if I did not mention another movie that screened at Texas Frightmare, which I, I saw that made a big impression on me. Um, and that was called The Dead Center. Um, it is... It, it starts off with a uh, man who is uh, ostensibly dead waking up in a body bag. And it, the story grows from there. I don't, I don't want to say too much to give, give away the twists and turns to your listeners because it, uh, it's one of those movies that really pays off going in not knowing a whole lot about it. Uh, but it grows into something much, much bigger than, than what it starts out as. And it, it really impressed me. Uh, it, it, is, it is pretty bleak. Um, so it's, it's not what I would call a feel-good movie, but it is a movie that left me thinking about it for weeks after having seen it. One more question around the horror uh, aspect before we get to the movie that we want to talk about. But I, you see in, like at least I see on film Twitter and wherever in the media, I see every time a horror movie comes out and is a hit, Maybe you know where I'm going with this. You see the term elevated horror, which I don't even know what that means. <laughs> what is your take on on like any time? Like it feels like certain film critics, if a horror movie is critically acclaimed or success, like, you know, like, you know, financially successful, that it, it somehow it, it stands apart from, from or transcends the genre or something like that. What do you how do you define horror and what's your take on that that whole I guess mini controversy within the horror community because I I know people on on Twitter that I follow that other critics and things like that that are have very strong feelings about that. You know, honestly, I think the whole thing is a little bit silly. Um, I think that there are some people who just for for whatever reason have a, a certain distaste for horror uh, because I, I think horror as a genre. Uh, covers such a wide range of, of films and tones and styles and approaches that for me, it's like, you know, horror is horror. It may be a horror. It may be B horror. It may be, you know, shot on video, just gore trash. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, if, if something scares me or it makes me feel uneasy or, uh, you know, makes me kind of look into the shadows a little deeper to see what's going on. That's, that's a horror movie. I think, I think the term elevated horror is just kind of silly. Uh, I'm, I don't get mad about it. Like I know it's really aggravated some of, some of our peers. Right. Um, but to me, it just seems kind of silly. On the other hand, if that's what uh, a certain critic or a certain moviegoer needs to call it to make it okay for them to, to watch it or even better to enjoy it, I'm not going to complain too much about that either. Uh, I think getting more eyes on the genre is, is good both for the individual filmmakers and for the genre as a whole. And so if you have to do a little bit of mental gymnastics to get there, so be it. Um, a lot of the things that I've seen over the last couple of years that I've really enjoyed would fall into that category that some people use of, of elevated horror. And I think we'll probably see more of that in the next few years. Um, but 
overall, I, I think it's it's good for the genre. It's good for filmmakers, and it's good to get more people out actually out there seeing these movies. Yeah, I, I agree. Because you see something like Us, which is the big horror movie this year that's made so much yes. money and got all those good reviews, and it's it's almost, to me it feels just like a, a marketing tactic, just like guilt free snacking. It's like the cinematic equivalent <laughs> of that. It's like, don't worry, it's 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 actually good for you. It's you don't you know right. you're not gonna that kind of thing. So it's just yeah, I, I just wanted to get your take on that. And it's it's interesting that you're a horror fan and and that we're talking about this action series because. Some of the moments in these films kind of get kind of graphic with the violence and have like a lot of suspense to them, actually. So I, I would almost argue that there are some minor elements of horror kind of infused into this film and this franchise. I would I would agree with you, especially given some of the sequences in, in the most recent uh, in the most recent uh, episode, John Wick three Parabellum. There is a sequence that immediately reminded me of of Lucio Fulci, um, who has a, a tendency to include scenes of of ocular damage in uh-huh. some of his. Films. Yeah, that, that's all you had to say. I was like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because <laughs> there were in the first two movies, I think, and and then after after I say this, I guess we'll just uh, introduce the trailer and then get going on this. Um, in the first two movies, I even said this to my wife. She's like, how was the movie? And she is kind of skittish with, with extreme violence, things like that. So I was like, I don't, I don't know if <laughs> you're going to deal with this because she's a fan of the franchise as well. But in the first two, there's like a moment or two where I kind of go, ooh, that was, that, was, that was a bad one. That was ugly, what just happened there. Right. The thing with the pencil, which we'll get into in the second one. <laughs> uh, but in the third one, it felt like it was like every 10 minutes. I was like, oh, damn. No, he did yes. not. Um, so obviously, we're going to be talking about John Wick in this episode. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Daisy. I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Jonathan. You got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may find something reaching out to pull you back in. It's personal. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. Nobody? But nobody. It's John Wick. That was a little bit of the trailer for John Wick, directed by uh, Chad Stahelski and uncredited David Leach. So he went off and did Deadpool 2 and Atomic Blonde and uh, oh, he's doing uh, Hobbs and Shaw, I think, this summer. So yes. And Chad has stayed with the franchise, which I, we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that. So I guess to start with, we, we actually, this conversation came up kind of organically on Twitter because I saw... Chapter Three Parabellum and was just lavishing praise on it. And Dane Michael of CF3 was like, "You guys need to talk." And uh, <laughs> so, to start with, when did you come across this franchise, and uh, and what were your initial thoughts? So, I can't remember who recommended the first one to me. Otherwise, I would give them full credit here. Um, I wasn't really tracking on it when it first came out. But maybe a week or two after it had been released, one of my friends said, you've got to go see this movie. And so I, I went and saw the first one in the theater and was just blown away. And uh, then when the second one came out, um, 
a woman I was dating at the time, she and I rented the first one, watched that, and then went and saw the second one in the theater. Uh, and I think I ended up seeing the second one in the theater uh, another time within the first week or so after it came out. And then uh, leading up to the release of of part three, the Alamo Draft House here in Austin played all three back to back the Thursday that uh, – before it opened. And so the way that you and I got uh, hooked up initially stemmed from a conversation that started on Facebook with Dane. Uh, he saw that I had checked in and was seeing the triple feature and he, he started making some, some kind of down, downplaying comments like he wasn't interested. And at one point I was just like, dude, that is your loss. <laughs> and so when, when you started that, that conversation on Twitter, he was like, you guys need to talk. <laughs> um, so I, I was lucky enough, thanks to a, a friend who was uh, wiser than I, to get to see the first one in theaters when it came out. And since then, every time a, a new one has been announced, I've been right there opening weekend. I didn't even see, for my side, I didn't even see it in theaters. I think it was on DVD, actually. Uh, I don't even remember how, how I ended up watching it. I guess I just heard good things and I red boxed it or something and finally checked it out because people might not, I mean, people need to remember pr- prior to John Wick, Keanu Reeves was on a little bit of a downturn. I mean, he had just come off of 47 Ronin, which was a big budget flop. Uh, his last big studio movie was The Day the Earth Stood Still, like six years earlier, which did not do really well and was kind of critically derided. So he, it had been a while since he had been a big thing. So this, and this really felt like one of the big sleeper hits of uh, the fall of 2014. So I somehow got involved with it when it came to DVD. I got, I bought a couple of copy of it on DVD, and then uh, when Chapter Two came out, my dad and uh, my brother and I went to see it. And we had, that's a tradition that we now kept up with chapter three. And then after the, that ended, I was like, all right, fellas, I'll see you a couple of years for chapter four. Before, <laughs> before I knew that it, had, it was going to, before it was announced, that it was going to come out almost exactly two years later. Um, yes. Because I just assumed that I mean, the way the third one ends is that's not a, really a spoiler for the third one, uh, that it, it's going to continue. They already announced that film. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's something that, that I really fell in love with over, over time. And it's funny because, it did well, but it it didn't do it didn't do like gangbusters at the box office. It cost twenty. It made forty three domestically, but the sequels, like the third one, made outgrossed the the first one in its opening weekend. It's like it's insane how you how quickly the audience has grown uh, over each film. I think it's forty three ninety two, and then we're at like a hundred and something now for the third one, and it's only been wow. out I think two weeks. Yeah, that that's impressive. And I think that just goes to show uh, the positive word of mouth, because I think that there were a lot of people who maybe didn't catch the first one or, or even the second one in the theater. Yeah. But from having that experience of friends saying, you've got to you've got to see this movie, you've got to watch this movie. Uh, it just continues to grow. Actually, I, I went and rewatched uh, chapter three this morning with my daughter and her fiance. Um, and that kind of came out of nowhere. We were talking earlier this week and I asked if, if they had seen, uh, if they had seen it. And, uh, my daughter told me that they hadn't seen the first two either. And I went digging around in my, in my Blu-ray collection and still had the, the digital download codes stuck in the front of chapter one and chapter two. So I took a picture of those, sent them over and I was like, just be aware there's maybe 30 second sequence in the first one mm-hmm. that that you're probably going to want to look away for uh, 
but they watched the first one and fell in love with it the next night, watched the second one. And so this morning we got up at like, uh, and went to like a 1030 showing and watched the third one. It, it feels like the very definition of a franchise that has, that came completely out of nowhere because it featured basically a, at the time, kind of washed up action star and directed by his former stunt double and it's and d- d- uh, the screenwriter Derek Kolstad he only really previously done because I did I looked him up right before this he'd only really previously written a couple of directed directed DVD Dolph Lundgren films so there was not really much pedigree like behind the scenes to to you know for this to be become what it has become which it's kind of it's crazy how it, it just feels like it's grown very organically over time Absolutely. I think this is a case of having the right people with the right project at the right time and everybody giving it their best effort. Which is ironic considering that the beginning of the movie, the kind of inciting incident is kind of a classic example of a wrong person being in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I think you're referring to the, the, uh, the death of the puppy early on. Yes. 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 And I think that turned off like some of my family members, my my parents, my mom is is a dog person and all that. So my brother same thing. So I think that really made them be like, "Oh, wait, I don't want to see a puppy get killed." You know, I think that was the kind of a initially a little bit of a turn off and I'd be like, "Okay, well, skip that part. Fast forward the 30 second like that one scene and then you're good to go from there on out." Uh so it it really also feel, feels to me like this is it's kind of almost because of the thing with the puppy, it feels like it's born out of kind of a, a uh, I guess we should say the general premise of the movie, but it basically starts out like as a home invasion film that um, and that's kind of goes into the elements of horror that I was talking about. That it feels like kind of a B movie premise. This guy who's out with his his wife died. He's out with he has a puppy and guys break in his house, take his car, take his kill his puppy, and that's it. He's got to get revenge on his puppy. So uh, at the from the outset, it feels almost like a, a B movie, like kind of goofy, like cult movie. But it actually the, what makes it different, what what makes this film work, I think, and and has spawned carry the character forward is that there is that, um, that there's genuine emotion behind it like there's a deeper meaning he says in chapter 3 there's it was it wasn't just a puppy there was a lot more to that character and i think it's kind of taken time for maybe audiences to to realize that i i agree with that 100% and and like you're saying i i think this does have a lot in common with specifically some some grindhouse and exploitation style films from the 70s and and maybe the early 80s as well um but it, it's on a bigger scale it's got a-list actors it's got you know top-notch action sequences um so i i almost am loath to to use the term again but it, it's kind of elevated um from these kind of humble humble low budget roots and, and especially now with the sequels, the first one is very straightforward. It's very contained. It almost feels like a, in in some way, kind of a, a proof of concept for what they could do with this world, with this character, because it all it's all set in New York. And then in the sequels, he goes international, and you can tell that they had a exponentially bigger budget to get bigger stars into it and all of that. Um, and I and I think that's really kind of helped, uh, I guess, expand the appeal of the franchise. So. I, you can't really talk about the John Wick franchise without talking about Keanu Reeves. So what did you think about his uh, his performance in this movie and where he was in his career? Do you first of all, you know, do you think what do you think about Keanu Reeves as an actor? Do you think he is a quote good actor? 
I think that there are roles where he has been absolutely perfect for, and then I think there have been instances where where he has been woefully miscast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take a look at uh, early on; most of our first exposure to him was probably in the Bill and Ted movies. Absolutely, he's, he's perfect in that role. Um, then I think back to the mid '90s when I was working in a movie theater and Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, and so much of that movie is just gorgeous and painstakingly uh, put together, um, and his his accent in that movie just completely takes me out of it every time. Um, but then then you flash you know you flash forward a few years to The Matrix, and The Matrix. Um, to me, kind of redefined what he could do in a movie and what he was willing to do in a movie. And especially in the beginning of that trilogy, uh, his character played off of some of the stereotypes and jokes that existed about who he was. And I think what we see with the John Wick series is almost exactly what we saw with The Matrix. You know, it was taking him from a place where his career may not have been uh, in the best place um, and tailoring uh, a movie to all of his strengths. And I think one of his greatest strengths is his willingness to put in so much work to physically prepare for, for these kinds of roles. Um, so you're right. I mean, you, you take a look at things like the day the earth stood still and, and 47 Ronin and he was, he was kind of on, on the, the downward slope of, of the career trajectory. But, uh, I think with this series, um, and especially how much it has continued to grow, um, it's put him back on top again. Uh, I, I was speaking with someone recently and it may have been, it may have been Dane when Dane was kind of poo-pooing the John Wick movies. But I, I said, and I, there may be some that I'm missing because I'm not the biggest action fan. Uh, but to me, these are, are probably the best American action movies made in the last 20 years or so. Well, I, I definitely want to comment on that, but to back it up a second. But yeah, I, I know I 100% agree with you on Keanu Reeves. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bill and Ted movies. I, I, you know, I grew up with those. Um, the Matrix and Speed, like if you put him in the right the right mode where he gets to like either quietly like has like a either a quiet strength or sort of a, a takes advantage of his kind of in it because he has an inherent likability on screen. So even yeah. something like John Wick, he, he that character gets sort of moments of like kind of wry like dark humor infused within the the, the plot line of everything that's going on with all the all the violence and everything surrounding him. Um, but he's great at he's great at being he's great at uh, at at being angry. He's great at, at kind of coming off as like a, a broken man. Cause that's, I don't know. I don't know how much you know about like Keanu Reeves real life, but he's suffered a lot of tragedy. He had a, a, a girlfriend that our fiance, I think that passed away when she was pregnant with his child. And, and there's a lot of, and I think I remember he was in that movie hardball in the early two thousands. And I think I remember like him even like channeling saying that he channeled some of that actual grief that he experienced into that performance, which gets kind of dark towards the end. Um, there's there's he he seems like he has a, he brings a lot of gravitas to this this role specifically and i and i don't think he necessarily could have done this part 
if he were 30, if he were 40. But the fact that he's a 54-year-old man who has been in this industry, which is crazy to see a 54-year-old. I mean, I'm 35, and and I, he's, he, he looks better, younger, in better shape than i ever been, probably will ever be. And and um, like you said, he's just so physically committed to the part, to, to learning the the, uh, the stunt work as much as to let him, I guess. And it's this actually ties back into your other point, it really reminds me of Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible movies. I mean, those are very, it's a very different style of action. But to me, those two, like, those two are the only ones that come into my mind when I think of the best American action movie franchises right now. I mean, I love, I love things like The Raid, which is, again, like, that's Indonesian. That's not, you know, the North American whatsoever. But as far as the American side of things, I think John Wick and Mission Impossible are head and shoulders above everything else. And that includes right. the billion-dollar Fast and Furious movies, which are very hit and miss <laughs> these days. Um, kind of have been, I guess. But, uh, yeah, and it, it, and it comes down to Reeves, his commitment to the role, the fact that they have the same director, the same screenwriter. It feels like there's one vision running through these, these films. And that's something I think that Mission Impossible specifically has kind of struggled with bringing in a different director. And now they're really hitting their stride with Christopher McQuarrie, who did five and six, and now it's doing seven and eight. Um, but just the fact that those two franchises keep pushing the envelope, um, Mission Impossible with, you know, as, cra- as far as the crazy stunts hanging on planes and things like that, and John Wick right. as far as gunplay, knife play, car chases, uh, and their leading men are both in their mid-50s. I think that's kind of an interesting comparison. Do you? What else would you put in that conversation? What are like the runner-ups, I guess, to the John Wick? Is Mission Impossible in there for you at all? Yes, I, I would say that Mission Impossible would be a, a second place for me uh, just because uh, I, I have not found that series to be either as, as consistent or as engaging as, as the John Wick films. And, and I think your point about having um, that continuity of the creative team um, contributes so much to that. Um, but honestly, if, if we're looking at anything that could even be comparable, I, I think you have to start looking outside uh, the U.S., um, films like uh, there's a Korean uh, action film that came out a couple of years ago called The Villainous. Um, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it seems like the villainous got a nod in John Wick three with the, uh, motorcycle sword fight. Oh, uh, nice. and, and then there was, um, a movie by, um, I, I may butcher his name, uh, Timo Jahanto, I believe is his name. Um, called The Night Comes for Us, which is on Netflix right now, uh, that is similar in a lot of ways to The Raid, uh, but just has mind-boggling action. Um, you know, there, there may be things from the U.S. That, that I have let slip by or have flown under my radar, uh, but I don't think there's anything really going on that holds a candle to, to John Wick um, or to Mission Impossible. And I think you've already touched on one of the big reasons why. And I think another, uh, another thing that, that adds to that is that, uh, of course those movies in, integrate CGI into what they're doing, mm-hmm. but so much of the stunt work is practical and that shows in the finished product. Absolutely. I think part of it too is, is that some of it all feels 
really personal. You know, we're getting everything pretty much from John Wick's perspective. Everything is a lot of ten times it tends to be really close combat, whether it's with weapons or without weapons. It's everything feels really. Uh, there's a certain intimacy and, and visceral nature to the uh, to the the action in, in this film. Because they're not, <laughs> to go back, not to pick on Fast and Furious, but it's an easy target. Uh, they're not <laughs> flying cars off of rooftops or having, like, right. what was in the last one? The, the like, wave of, of remote control cars, like, chasing down the streets or whatever was going on there. It's like, you know, that <laughs> just takes you out of it. Or, like, the Transformers is another one. that It's an easier target than, than even right. Fast and Furious. But there, there's, and there, there's such high-level... In, in attention to detail with every little bit of the action in, in these films. And you can tell that they're getting only better at it with each movie because the third one, I feel like there were like usually three action sequences kind of strung together where you, you get a knife fight and then you go right into a motorcycle chase and then right into a, a foot chase or like, you know, a gunfight or whatever. It, it, it's just so relentless to the point that by the end of the movie, I was exhausted watching, watching him, uh, you know, have to deal with everything that was coming at him, because it takes a while. And to, to go back to the first movie, which is ostensibly the focus here, um, the first act really there isn't really any action for maybe thirty minutes or something like that, because right. they they are laying the groundwork for what he's been through, what he's feeling inside, the fact that he feels like he has nothing to lose. And they lay all, they hook you. It kind of reminds me of how Guardians of the Galaxy does that a little in the first scene. Like they hook you with the emotion up front and then everything happen, that happens actu- afterwards, the action actually means something. There's a story behind it rather than just, oh, look how they fight really cool, you know? And that, right. that elevates it. So you're, you're, you're connected to this man and you're invested in what happens to him. Yes. And I, I think there's two things going on there. Uh, you mentioned Keanu Reeves' likability. And I couldn't agree more with that statement. If this were a less a lesser actor or a less likable actor, I don't think that audiences would connect with the character of John Wick the way that they do. Because if, if you take away the likability and some of what is set up in that first sequence of the first film – He's not a very redeemable character. He's not a very nice character. He mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, it's it's hard to even call him an anti-hero. He's probably one of the least bad of the bad guys that the the movie's world is populated with. But because Keanu brings that likability to the role, and because we see what he has gone through with the loss of his wife and trying to get out of the life so that he could be there with with this woman that it sounds like in many ways saved him, um, and then to have all of that ripped away and have, have any reminders of her that he was trying to hold on to systematically taken away from him uh we we really start to to empathize with the character we start to want to see him pull off these impossible uh tasks and and survive another day even though if, if you look at things from just a black and white vantage point he's a bad guy and we shouldn't be yeah. rooting for him yeah exactly and i think it helps you know, I mentioned earlier that he wouldn't have been able to pull this role off in his 30s or 40s. And I think it, it you know, we're already inherently on his side because we've seen him 
in other movies. He, we've seen his career go up and down. So he feels like an underdog in a way, even though he's obviously not, because the movie does such a uh, uh, focus uh, focused job of mythologizing him way like before you even see him like smash through uh, his little arsenal there and, and let everything loose. <laughs> the whole Baba Yaga speech, basically, that, that Michael uh, yes. Nyquist did. Um, so what do you think about that part of it? You know, speaking to the fact that this is head and shoulders above pretty much every other action franchise, how much of that do you think is owed to the world building, the coins, the markers, the rules of the continental, the high table, the, the and, and the, the Baba Yaga thing, the impossible tasks, the whole with, with the, with a fucking pencil, the three guys, with the pe- <laughs> all of that, the sommelier and all that, like how much do you think? Cause I, I feel like that is kind of the, the franchise's signature in a way. It is a huge part of it, and it's it's one of the things that I love about every sequel that we get. Every sequel kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit more. We learn more about the world and how it works and how these characters interact. And as that's going on, the, the palette that they're painting with gets bigger, both in terms of the locations and the look of the film as well. Um, Moving moving forward to chapter three, uh, the one of the most stunning sequences to me was the time spent um, in and around Casablanca, uh, where they completely changed the look of the film and the color palettes used. It was stunning. Um, and jumping back a minute to the sommelier, that is one of my favorite parts of 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 chapter two, uh, that actor, Peter Serafinowicz, I am familiar with from a number of British comedies that I got into, uh, back in like the early two thousands. <laughs> and so to see him in that role, it just makes me smile every time. Um, and about that same time, they also have him interacting with the tailor when he's getting outfitted for the, the bulletproof suit. Yep. Uh, the person playing the role of the tailor is actually the costume designer for all of the films. Nice. He had never acted before, uh, but they couldn't find someone that they wanted for that role. And so they just brought him in and had him do it. That's that's kind of actually a, a, a wonderful little like meta meta casting because you just, you know, yes. go on camera, talk about the suit like it's a suit. And we'll all infer <laughs> that you're talking about you know, uh, fortifying and making it basically armor. That's the other thing that these movies do so perfectly. I feel like the first one is a little more straight. It's a little like, you know, it's more, like I said, it's more of a proof of concept of them being like, okay, will people buy into this where there's this whole like underbelly of assassins and then people were, you know, gradually got it. Like, oh, okay, this is cool. I get it. Then the second one and the third one, even more so, they really, they really toy with that where they (laughs) really try and see how far can we push this? How, how, close how much can we toe the line between really like uh really grounded action thriller and like kind of ridiculous almost comic book level out of loss here a world building of mythologize i keep going back to those words because that's what it feels like it's like oh there's the secret society behind it all and you know it it feels very comic booky in a way and the fact that they they have all these character actors that pop up. I mean, obviously Halle Berry is not a character actress, but <laughs> you have people like Willem Dafoe and John Leguizamo and Ian McShane. And, um, you know, you mentioned Peter Serafinowicz and Lance Reddick, 
and Ruby Rose, Common, Peter Stormare, all these people, Mark DeCascos, Angelica Houston, that show up in there. It feels like the, this franchise is almost a haven for character actors in the way that the Continental is for assassins. And you have them playing at all these different levels where Ian McShane is kind of playful. Lawrence Fishburne gets to really ham it up. And, uh, you know, it, it gives you such a... Uh, a, a huge sandbox to plan where you never know if you're going to have a tragic moment or something kind of goofy happen. Or, or a mix of the two, Usually which they that, are. Yeah. Um, so another one of the cameos that, that really made me sit up and take notice in the second one, the manager of the continental in Rome is uh, Franco Nero, who, uh, right. you know, me, pe- most people, uh, if they recognize him, recognize him from spaghetti westerns, um, and he also had a, a bit part in Django Unchained, which was, you know, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing because he played Django in in a spaghetti western of the same name. But you also mentioned uh, that these feel like a comic book, and I think that's a really important point because if you hear the director talk about the approach to the films. Uh, one thing that he mentions over and over and over again is how he kind of thinks of this in terms of a graphic novel and his approach to the storytelling and even some of the visuals is inspired by graphic novels. Um, and so I, I think that there is a, a definite element of that that we have to keep in mind. Uh, you know, I've heard some people kind of wringing their hands about uh, the violence or the quote unquote gun porn used in, in John Wick. Um, and it's, it's important for us to remember that this is not meant to be the real world. There is enough world building going on and enough similarity with, with the world we live in today to where some of it feels real. But yes, this is, this is mythology. This is storytelling. This is a made up world, even though parts of it feel like our own. I mean, it's just so, and then again, this is the thing the sequels have really highlighted. It's just so operatic. The second one, you have the whole scene. Uh, there's like a concert going on when he when yes. he takes a trip to Italy. In the third one, there's like ballet rehearsal happening while the shootout is going on. And you can, you know, even little things like when he goes to the tailor and gets his, like, that's his bat suit, basically. He's getting <laughs> outfitted with all the little toys. He's got super villains. There's a secret. There's like a, literally a Legion of Doom kind of running everything. I mean, it's it's so stylized from everything. And you mentioned the visuals, the way that the 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 sequels really play with like neon light and and uh you know all kinds of color blends and the uh the cinematography the sound design even the tyler bates and joel j richard score it's very like it feels like something out of a blade movie really yes yes and it 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 also includes new uh new takes on the the themes that that follow along with the movies as well um in the second one i i thought that I noticed more overt uh, cues that that seemed they wouldn't be out of place in a spaghetti western. And then in the third one, it incorporates uh, more Middle Eastern sounds, especially during the, the sequences where they're in and, in and around Casablanca. Um, it, that is just as rich a part of the storytelling as, as any of the world building or on screen action that takes place. Um, and again, having the same composers working on each one ties them all together, together thematically, just like everything else we've been talking about. Yeah. And if, and if this franchise is introduced, is 
influenced by horror, then John Wick is literally the boogeyman. He's basically, <laughs> <laughs> if you if you flip the perspective, if you tell the story from Alfie Allen's perspective in the first movie, John Wick is like Freddy Krueger coming coming after everyone else. If you if you flip that perspective, you could very easily see John Wick as a Michael Myers character, yes, but with a absolutely. gun instead of a butcher knife. You know, he's he's not going to, to say very much to you. He is just an unstoppable force. And from that aspect, it very much plays like a horror film. And he doesn't really have if you look really go back and look at the films, he doesn't really have that much dialogue. He's very he's very much a classical action hero that he only speaks when he needs to. He never he doesn't really quip. He has, you know, he's very short. That's why like be seeing you is kind of his like all-purpose response to anyone that like says i'm gonna get you john or whatever uh throughout the trilogy that's well it's not even really a trilogy they're gonna do more so uh is there a specific i guess talking about the first film is there a specific action sequence or or moment um or something in the in the first film that really stands out to you if I was to if I was to nail it down to one, I think you have to go with the the ultimate fight after he's taken out Alfie Allen's character and Vigo is trying to get to the the helicopter and and get away before the boogeyman can get to him. So you start out with this car chase where there's just you know they're running SUVs off the the side of this huge drop off, but it ends almost like a classic gunfight or even uh, a face-off between Neo and the agent in the Matrix where it's all just this torrential downpour and this balls-out fist fight between John Wick and Vigo. Um, that is just it, – it just is like the, the ultimate uh, visuals from that movie for me. If I think about John Wick 1, that's that's what I think about is that that fist fight out in the rain. Even though uh, you know they they did, aren't doing the fancy gun work or anything like that for much of it, there's there is the part where uh uh Dean Winters hops out of the car and is is shooting at John Wick and John Wick ends up taking him out with the car. <laughs> These movies have such a forward momentum to them. That's why like for me to go back and try and cons- and pick out a favorite action beat or or sequence, it's almost it's almost really hard for me to do so because it just feels like especially the sequels, it feels like such a it's consistent flow. It's not like uh I I always I mention these a lot, but just because they're everywhere these days. Like it's not like a Marvel movie where there's basically three set pieces, beginning, middle, end. You know, it's just there's there's different scale to them but they it's it's they're so consistently doled out and you know we said right before we started recording that part of why these films feel so cohesive is yes the the team behind it but the fact that between one and two i think there's maybe a few days for them to for um aurelio to locate the car and then for two and three ten minutes a few i mean it picks up right from the end so it, it, it that's why i'm really jealous that you got to see all three of them in a back to back to back uh, marathon on the big screen because it just must have just felt like one like six hour movie basically 
that's exactly what it felt like. And, and we also mentioned episodic television. And I think another reason that it gets to be kind of hard to just pick out one specific scene or one specific beat is that if you do watch them in, in close succession like that, um, it all becomes one big movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I think when I think back about it, especially being able to watch them all three back to back a couple of weeks ago, that's what it feels like. It feels like, you know, you may get an intermission and it, a chance to run to the restroom, but that's the equivalent of a commercial break. You're back in your seat and the action's picking up right away. Do you, having seen all three films, like literally right, right, right next to each other, do you have a, uh, a favorite from the three or is that like really, is that really hard to parse out at this point? I, you know, I, I go back and forth. If, if I were to look at my letterboxed ratings, I believe that I have the the first rated as four and a half out of five stars, and then the second and the third rated as four stars. Um, but I I don't know that that is I don't know that that's indicative of of a difference in quality between any of them. I think that the first one just stuck with me because it was so different from anything that I had seen up to that point, and it was you know, easily the best thing that I had seen Keanu Reeves in since the first Matrix movie. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really hard for me to pick out a favorite. I mean, uh, when when Chapter 2 came out, I was just blown away by the action sequences in that, um, especially like you mentioned around the concert and when he's going through the, the catacombs um, trying to get away. Those action sequences are amazing. And then there's the whole like optical illusion fight at the end. But then seeing three, uh, three just ups the ante even more. And I, I love the sequence when they are, uh, when he is fighting with Halle Berry by oh his side and, yeah. and her dogs. Uh, that is just incredible. Um, and the third one also brings in, you know, several different types of, of enemies that we hadn't seen uh, John confront before. You You have... Um, you know, you have the, the Japanese, uh, fighters that are almost fighting like ninjas and hiding in the background and jumping out and just taking people down brutally with swords. Um, it, it's hard for me to say that I like one out of the other. I'll, I would be willing to sit and watch all three back to back again. And I don't know that I could pick a favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, to, to your point, I, I think it's the rare franchise where, Every time they make another one, it's so good, and it and it, as we said already, deepens the world. and And actually, you learn a little bit more about John, which with everyone too. Like in the second one, you learn how he how he actually managed to get out. That he needed uh, yes. Santino's help to do so. In the third one, you you learn a, like a little bit about his his background, where he grew up, like that he actually had ties with Angelica Houston. Uh, you know, when he was much younger, like coming up as an orphan and things like that. Like you see little bits, like you, you learn about the high table, but you also learn about his own history. And it sort of feels like because of that, each subsequent film, because they've been hitting that mark so consistently actually elevates, not to use that word again, but in a different context, actually elevates the other films. You know what I mean? So watching two and three actually makes adds dimension to one. So they're all kind of, for me, they're all kind of floating in the four, four and a half realm. And I, other than Mission Impossible, I can't think of another action franchise that is, that, that you're that captivated to see. I mean, you know, you're, you're a horror guy and I'm not as, as well versed in that, but I kept going back every year for those damn Saw movies, not because they were (laughs) great, 
but because they tease answers to questions and then it was like it's like a soap opera with like mutilations every 10 minutes that because they right. tease out answers of like oh what's behind that door where did she bring that letter or like what 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 how did this work with this apprentice or whatever and because of that it's like you're so keyed into it that chapter two ended and i and I, t- I mentioned that i saw them with my dad and my brother the the second and third and i leaned over and like i want the third one right now we were both like all like hyped up for it and three leaves you the same way so it's it almost makes me wonder like you know where do you think the next film will go how many of these should they make before they just stop you know stop risking the whole franchise well that that's a good point and you know something something to think about is ultimately one of two things is is going to happen it's it's all going to catch up with john wick and he won't be smart enough or fast enough or or skilled enough to get out of it or they they will run the risk of the the series becoming a parody of itself uh because i mean john wick as it is he's he's not invincible invincible kind of but kind of is he's pretty close to it you know uh but we are willing to stretch the suspension of disbelief because we're we are so invested in the character and in the world um but i i believe just on a personal level that as long as the creative team has a vision and keanu continues to to put in the work uh to to make these set pieces believable they've they've still got a lot of gas in the tank i i would love to see john wick four five and six as long as he's up for it like it's like i mentioned he is 54 so it's like if he's gonna stay as committed physically to this role you kind of imagine that at some point he's he's, it's not gonna be like it's not gonna be healthy for him to continue to do so which is why i think going back to mission impossible which is why i think they're doing seven and eight back to back because he's actually even older than counter reeves by a couple years so they're trying to get as many of those in the tank as they can before like his back goes out or something and it's like forget it you're you know the doctors don't sign off on it anymore um is, is there do you have a particular uh like wish or idea or something you want them to i, I mean obviously it looks like I mean, not really kind of mild spoilers for for chapter four or for chapter three and then I guess speculation for chapter four. Um, but the, it looks like we're finally going to at least get closer to meeting the high table. But see, I kind of felt like that was going to be three, like that we we're going to get there in three. And I feel like they're just extending that road a little bit more, probably because they don't know what their grand plan is for this franchise. Well, we we did we did meet some of the high table in three. That's true. So we we did meet uh, we did meet the the gentleman in in um, in Casablanca that was played by the actor who uh, many people will know from Game of Thrones as as Sir Bronn of the Blackwater. So we we met him and he was in charge of the minting operation where they created the the gold coins and the markers, which was so cool to see that too. Just the little details, you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. Everything it's like everything's right. starting to fall into place. And then we meet the man out in the desert, who at least as far as we know is is the leader of the high table. And you know, a, a big part of of chapter three has to do with this. Uh, with this sect of of people that we've never been introduced to previously, uh, the adjudicators. Um, so, just like in two, we we are getting a wider a wider shot of the world. We're learning more about the mythology, but there's still plenty that we don't know. 
So, and, and this, this may get into spoiler territory as well, but I, I won't say too much. Um, I will say that with the way that it ended, I was, I was having a conversation with my family earlier today. Um, and we really want to believe that, uh, the events that happened with Winston towards the end are part of a long con and not actually, uh, a big turn in his character. Yeah, I think that as well. I mean, they've they've invest they've spent too much time building up that relationship because uh, the, the the relationship between John and Winston is really kind of the the most uh, I guess the most focal relationship for John, other than his relationship with his wife in in these movies. I mean, they they really highlight that in every single movie that he he cuts John a lot of slack. He gave him that hour, which comes back to bite him in this movie. <laughs> Spoilers, I guess. Um, and so, so I gotta, I have to, I have to believe that he is still kind of, you know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to want to say too much about it, that. He's, there's a lot more that we don't know about that scenario and how John and Winston, where they are going to end up in, in volume four. Um, I, it, I, I, it's, I really, I've, I mean, I've tweeted about this in the last few days as well, but I really kind of want to see, now that Lawrence Fishburne has been in these movies, I really want to see Carrie Ann Moss. And even leaving the movie, I was joking to my brother because we've talked to his, he and I, like both of our favorite movies, basically The Matrix. And we've talked about that on this podcast uh, a couple few months ago. So I was, I was leaning over to him, like half joking, half serious, like how awesome would they get, would it be if they get Hugo Weaving to show up in these things as like the big bad in one of these movies? And he's like Mr. Wick or something like that. Like it feels like it's it feels like in a way the the John Wick series is evolving into the Matrix franchise. Which if it does that kind of like if it toys with that a little bit, I I kind of I can get down with that. I mean, just with the fact that they brought Lawrence Fishburne in it and the way not mild spoilers now the way Chapter Three kind of teases at them playing up uh, more of that uh, you know that character in some way. Um, what do you what do you think about that? Like who who's who would you like to see join the ensemble next? Not that we want this to turn into the Expendables or something, but <laughs> I honestly I would be down to see either Hugo Weaving or Carrie Ann Moss. And you know, uh, one thing that I was thinking as I was watching it today was the the character of the adjudicator, who I believe the actress's name is Asia Kate Dillon. Uh, I'm not familiar with any of her other work, but there were there were moments in John Wick three where her character was very reminiscent to me of Carrie Ann Moss, and so I could I could easily see them finding a place for her in in that world. Yeah, I've actually heard that as well. Um, that that maybe they were kind of eyeing. Carrie Ann Moss for that role. I don't know if that's speculative because that's people like like us watching the movie, but like she could have done that, or <laughs> if there was actually some somebody behind the films, you know, said that, or Carrie Ann Moss said that she was offered the role or something like that. Uh, but yeah, she, she has she does have a certain sort of uh, detached, kind of cold, androgynous energy that uh, Asia Kate Dillon also brought to to the role, and I love that character. So I definitely want to learn more about the Adjudicator going into going into four. Uh, the other thing that they've mentioned for the John Wick franchise, this was actually a couple of years ago after two, so I don't know if it's still happening or not, is uh, the TV series centered on the Continental. What do you think about the the uh, idea of, who knows, like a Hulu or Amazon Prime or something series picking up and exploring that, focusing more on the world itself, uh, separate from John Wick? So I'm of, I'm of two minds on that. If it was 
given the proper creative team and the proper budget um, and just approached smaller stories, it, it could be good. Uh, but I think the danger there is that you're not going to be able to have the cast. You're not going to be able to have the set pieces. And most likely, you're not going to be able to have uh, a, conti- a continual creative team. And so I don't think that it would feel as cohesive a world as what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, th- I think in theory it would be great and I would love to see, you know, the stories that are going on behind the different doors in the continental or visit different continentals that we haven't yet seen. You know, we've seen, uh, we've seen Casablanca, we've seen Rome, we've seen New York, but I'm sure there are plenty more out there. Uh, but I think that would be a gamble. And what I would hate to do is to see uh, viewer sentiment turn against John Wick because they tried a uh, they tried a series, be it on television or, or a streaming service, and it just didn't gel. It feels like an idea to me that they were floating out there after the second movie, and maybe they recognizing that it would be risking the viability of the films, and maybe they're they'll keep that in their back pocket for after the the movies have sort of run their course. Uh, right. Because it would at least you know you have to imagine that some of the supporting depending when they set it. You have to imagine some of the supporting players. Lance Reddick would show up either as a recurring character or something. Uh, right. Possibly even Ian McShane could be in it, depending, you know, all the all these, because we've met so many assassins and people in this world over these three movies that there's lots of opportunity for cameos to pop up there. And we were talking about the uh, the John Wick Matrix connections a minute ago, and I wanted to make sure I mentioned that Randall Duck Kim, the guy, the doctor that's sewing him up uh, early in three, uh, is actually the uh, key maker from the Matrix Reloaded, so that's another another uh, Matrix John Wick connection. Oh, that's awesome! I had not caught that. Yeah, I think I remembered when he was cast, and uh, and when I saw him, I was like, "Is that the guy from the Matrix?" I was like, "Oh my god, that's right! They did add him to the cast." <laughs> so I think that's the other reason why I was like, "Why it feels like they're really leaning into." Like Keanu got speed dialing all his everybody that was in the Matrix and being like, "Hey, do you want to be a part of the John Wick franchise? Joey Pants, come on, we we can play. Uh, you know, somebody that works at the Continental or whatever." Uh, you can well, be- it's <laughs> funny. It's funny that you mention that. So, as as I was preparing for for our talk today, um, I went through and and was watching the the films with the director commentary for for one and two, and um, they they told a story about how. Lawrence Fishburne got involved and uh, Keanu said that, you know, they've, they've kept their friendship since they worked on the matrix and they get together periodically and, and hang out. And they had gotten together at one point after the first, uh, after the first John wick had come out and Lawrence Fishburne told him how much he really liked the movie. And Keanu was surprised and pleased and, and went back and, and told the, um, told the director Chad Stahelski that Lawrence Fishburne had really liked the movie. And, uh, the director was like, really? And so, um, they, they sent him, they sent him a, an email or, or a copy of the script or something to see if he would be interested in, in playing a role. And the, the message that they got back just said something along the lines of I'm in, and it was signed fish. So it was just like, 
two words in the email and half a signature and he was in the world. So I, I would imagine that, uh, that they could get some other people from, from those movies involved. Uh, you know, they spent so much time working on those movies together that I have to imagine that they, they have a number of strong relationships built. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned, the matrix is my favorite movie. It was the film that, and if you listeners want to hear more, they can hear me and my brother talk about this for like, I don't know, two and a half hours. It went on for a while. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the movie that really helped me make the transition from, oh, movies are fun. It's, it's escapism. It's entertainment to, oh, my God, there's an art behind this. Everything has an intentionality. Everything is, is purposeful. There's symbolism. There's themes and all these. It's the movie that really opened me up to, to that, to the, the art artistic side of, of cinema. So uh, that's kind of just my connection to the matrix. So anything that John Wick wants to do, they'll throw a little reference to that all about it. I'm all about it. <laughs> and I, you know, I like the fact that now Keanu is a huge star again and he's got a third franchise. If you count Bill and Ted, now he's going back supposedly this fall, I think to shoot the third Bill and Ted movie, which is it's just insane that we live in this world now where everything <laughs> from the nineties, everything that I grew up with, that we grew up with is, is coming out like now, Oh, everything's being refreshed. It's, um, right. did you have any other, you know, I think we're kind of winding down cause now I'm talking about Bill and Ted, but do you have any other, uh, thoughts on John wick itself? Like where you want either about the movie, the first one, the, the sequels, uh, speculation for four or anything else you wanted to mention before we start winding down? Well, I, I did have a couple of thoughts. Um, one of those has to do with, with the question that you asked, uh, about, you know, a potential television series or something like that. And thinking along those lines, I can't help but think of, of this and not, not to get too far off topic, but there was a movie that came out between John Wick 2 and John Wick 3 that was called Hotel Artemis uh, that had Jodie Foster in it. And people, I knew people that swore up and down that this was a, a John Wick movie that was all about, you know, another hotel like the Continental. And uh, it's absolutely not connected, but it is absolutely someone else's take on a very similar mythology. And I just didn't care for it. I don't know if, if you've seen it. Uh, I would say it's worth watching once, especially if you don't have to pay for it. But it, it really stands in stark distinction of, of showing what the right team can do versus not having a right team. <laughs> I heard mixed to negative things on it. I think I was initially curious. And then I had heard that it's like, I heard I was not impressed by the reception I was hearing. So I was like, yeah, I could probably not watch that or see it eventually. And it's just, yeah, I yeah. haven't gotten to it. I mean, but, you know, we have three John Wick movies now. So if I want to see that premise done right, I'll watch John Wick one, two, three. Um, exactly. <laughs> it's it's more of a curiosity. I think yeah. I think I found it on sale for like six or seven bucks. And so I figured eh, I'll spend six or seven bucks. And I watched it. I didn't hate it, but it just, it was disappointing. Now, something else that's interesting that I, I don't know how I feel about it, but it seems a little bit more to the good side of things is there, there has been talk or rumors or speculation about a, a potential of crossing over the worlds of, of John Wick and Atomic Blonde. Yeah. And I could see that working much more, uh, much, much better than, than what they tried 
what whoever tried to do with Hotel Artemis, just because you've got some of the same creative team working on both. Uh, they, they feel very similar in a lot of ways. And, and I was blown away by Atomic Blonde as well. No, I, I, I completely agree. I remember here seeing, you know, some speculative articles like when Atomic Blonde was coming out. And, um, I mean, hearing stories of Charlize Theron and Keanu Reeves who worked together on Devil's Advocate and Sweet November, that they were like working out at the same place around the same time for the two movies. And um, the aesthetic's very similar. It's directed by David Leach, who co- uncredited co-directed the first John Wick. So it almost feels like at some point having those two worlds collide makes perfect sense because you have two stars that are already sounds like are already friendly the two directors who started the John Wick franchise initially. So how, how cool would it be if, if Atomic Blonde and John Wick bring back together the initial team that created John Wick in the first place? I, I would be 100% into that. And um, yeah, that's a great movie too. That's a good call. Uh, as far as Hotel Artemis, I don't, I, you know, I'm all about watching curiosities. I just told you I, I spent 85 minutes of my life watching another wolf, wolf cop recently. So <laughs> clearly uh, there's a low bar sometimes for me to be like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's see what happens. Um, <laughs> but Atomic Blonde is de- is actually a movie I would recommend. And I feel like a lot of people uh, slept on it for some reason or another. I think it came out like the tail end of the summer a couple years back. So that probably didn't help. Uh, you know, probably a lot of a competition at the box office. But yeah, that's definitely one that people that, that are fans of the John Wick franchise should check out. I, I agree a hundred percent on that, and that was another film that that I asked uh, my daughter and her fiance today if they had seen it, um, and they both said no. And so I went and snapped a picture of the the of uh, the uh, digital download code from the Blu-ray and sent it over to them. So there may be another couple of converts on that movie soon too. There you go. There you go. I love it. I love that you're paying it forward. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so yeah, I think usually I don't kind of like put pitch movies so hard, but like people listening to this, you haven't seen John Wick chapter three Parabellum. It's now playing. It's because usually we talk about movies that are out on Blu-ray and DVD or whatever already. But if people listening to this are curious about John Wick and haven't seen any of them or the new one, go, go find somebody that'll send you the digital codes for the first two <laughs> and then go see three in theaters while it's still there. Cause I, I highly, highly recommend that people that are interested in it, seeing it on a big screen with Dolby sound or an IMAX screen or whatever before, uh, you know, before Aladdin and, uh, <laughs> all the other Disney movies that are coming out in the next few weeks, uh, take over every screen at your local Cineplex. So, Uh, John, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at The Horror Isle. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. As you can tell, we're similarly passionate about this franchise. Uh, So I don't know. Has Dane not seen them? Like, is he not into them because he's not interested in seeing them? Or did he see them and doesn't care for it? He, from what I got from him, he has not watched them and he was not interested in doing so, Is which he, on, honestly, say, that kind of the way that I felt about the matrix 20 years ago. Right. And I was wrong. I was so wrong. And it took, it took a couple of friends whose taste I trusted saying, go see this movie to get me over that. So maybe between you and me, we can get him to watch John Wick. <laughs> well, it's also, as we mentioned, like the, the John Wick, the roots of it feel very B-movie. It, and he has a podcast about cult films. 
So right. I, I, you know, it feels like somebody, either his co-host on that show or us, somebody needs to like strap him down clockwork orange style and hold his, <laughs> hold his eyes open and like, dude, give it a, ch-. I don't know if maybe he's a dog person and he's like, oh, turned off by the, the, you know, the, the puppy thing at the beginning, which I, I'm, you know, obviously is not fun to watch. <laughs> it's an upsetting moment, but it's, you know, a one moment, one scene out of, out of a, the whole, and it fuels the rest of the movie. So well, and I, I will say about that, because I've had this conversation with, with my sister recently, who is uh, convalescing from a, an ankle injury and looking for recommendations of things to watch. And I said, you know, you, you, you want to be aware there is a scene of violence that, that involves a dog, but it's like 30 seconds out of a two-hour movie, and it, it's one of the inciting incidents for the story. But realistically, the way that that is handled, it's not graphic, it's not exploitative, uh, but it's still it's still going to get you where it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's primarily done with with the sound design and the blurry lens effect, and then you see the after effect. And so it, it's not exploitative, it's not graphic and in your face, but it it's there and it, it does hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's the shot afterwards where he like he's like you know holding the uh, holding Daisy yeah. after that. Yeah. You know after they've left and everything and. You know, it's it's funny because this is a uh, like really hard R action thriller franchise, like we said, very comic booky. And yet, between the the fact that the whole first movie is, is in part fueled by avenging uh, a puppy, and then there's the he takes a you know he finds a dog at the end of the first one that then carries over into the second film. Then all the stuff with Halle Berry's dogs in the third movie. You know, dog people. This is the franchise for you. Forget about all that other stuff. I just think that's kind of funny how they they weave that throughout that. Well, and there are two lines of dialogue in in chapter three that completely cracked me up. There, there's a an instance where um, where Martin Dacascos's character um, is is trying to trying to converse with John Wick and and say that they're similar in a lot of ways, and and he gets. I'm a cat person myself. <laughs> um, and then there's there's a line where he's talking with with Halle Berry about her dogs. And uh, he, he just says in, in response to something that's happened. No, I get it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been there. Lines, but yeah, both of those lines just get a laugh out of me every time. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. John, this has been an absolute pleasure. You're definitely welcome to come back to the show anytime, horror or otherwise. You know, if you see something and you're like, that would be a good, that would be a good something for me to talk to Rob about on the Crooked Table podcast. Send me uh, an email or a tweet or whatever, and we'll definitely have to connect at some point. This was so much fun delving into the world of John Wick as it as it stands. I agree, Rob. I, I love the movies. I had a great time talking about them with you here tonight, and I'll look forward to the chance that we have again in the future. Excellent. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate it. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED. Yeah, yeah, yeah.